Morning, everyone. A couple of things quickly. What does it say here? Don't make a big deal of this, but it's Min Humphrey's birthday today. Oh, I better not say anything. Sorry. Shh. <laughs> Happy birthday, Min. We love you. Juvenile, Ben. Uh, second thing is, I've had a printing failure, so I'm so sorry. I hate doing this, but I'm going to read this little bit off my computer. Don't worry, the rest is uh, fine. This is, as Jono said, uh, to, to sort of get us up to speed with Chapter 15, which we're going to hear in just a moment. But we've kind of got three chapters before that, that I will summarise what I consider the important parts in less than two minutes. Here we go. Sometime around 1400 BC, the great prophet Moses gave his final sermon to the people of Israel. He reminded them that God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into a covenant relationship with him and was about to take them into the promised land. But the Israelites failed to trust in the Lord, as was demonstrated through disobeying his word, hence they did not enter the promised land. And that whole generation died out in the wilderness over a 40-year period. Moses pleaded with and urged this new generation of Israelites to make sure they didn't make the same mistake, that they would enter the promised land and once settled, they'll continue to trust the Lord and obey him. It's a very famous sermon Moses preached. We know it as the book of Deuteronomy, correct? the fifth book of the Bible. Now, next slide, please. Roughly three to four centuries later, another great prophet, Samuel, gave his farewell sermon to the people of Israel. Like a band when they're going to retire, they do a farewell tour, except unlike John Farnham, he only did it once, you know, rather than kicker. <laughs> and Samuel again reminded the people of how God had rescued them from Egypt, brought them into the promised land, and had driven out their enemies before them. Yet the people had failed again. Instead of asking God to choose a king, they added this to all their sins. They made their own request for a king who would be like the kings of the other nations. So like Moses, Samuel in his big speech says, please, and he exhorts Israel to trust and obey Yahweh the Lord. If they and if now their appointed king would obey the word of the Lord. It would still be okay. Things would still go well. They would live securely and they would prosper with Yahweh. And that sermon is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now, I could uh, spend uh, three weeks in a row preaching on 1 Samuel 12, and I'd love to do that, but uh, obviously that's not what we're going to do. So please do, at least in your own time, read 1 Samuel 12 or, or make sure it gets some airtime in your growth groups if it hasn't already. Now... Back in Moses' farewell sermon, he made a point of saying, next slide please, Israel, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who lagged behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land he's given you to possess as an inheritance... You shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that the detestable wickedness of the people groups in the land of Canaan 
was something that had been festering for 400 years. And there's something especially evil about what the Amalekites did to the worn-out Israelites who were leaving Egypt. The Israelites most likely to have been lagging behind are, of course, the elderly or the women with young children or the injured. Those are the people that the Amalekites decided to slaughter, presumably to cause great devastation for the people of Israel. They knowingly defied Yahweh by slaughtering the vulnerable. On the basis of the text we're about to look at, which is 1 Samuel 15, it seems plausible to suggest that the Amalekites killed the children so as to absolutely devastate and demoralise the Israelites. And God will not be mocked. The word of the Lord is that they would therefore be blotted out from the pages of history. Israel were not to forget, they and now their king also were to obey God's word. They stuffed it up when they asked for their own king, but now ideally they'd not make the same mistake twice. Israel and Israel's king would utterly destroy the Amalekites. Moses had told them, now in effect in 1 Samuel 12 he had reminded them, and so that's what ought to happen. In chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel, the newly appointed King Saul takes on some Philistine enemies. And when the pressure is on, he and his army are very shaky at obeying God's word, to say the least. So, sadly, we're not super confident when we get to chapter 15. Will Saul himself learn the lesson that all Israel were to learn? Or will he fail yet Again, and with that introduction, we're going to hear the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel 15. I don't know who's reading it for us. Sue, wonderful. Come up, sister. Thanks. Be very thankful I'm not reading four chapters. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> I'm very Okay, so hopefully you found 1 Samuel chapter 15 by now. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go... Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. So Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. 
But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To, be, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. 
Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. As year six to eight head out for their Bible learning time together, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and you speak to us in your word for our good. Father, may we all tremble at your word this morning to be taught, rebuked, corrected and trained in righteousness by it so that we might become more pleasing to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. It's happened before, it's going to happen again. Whether on the small scale of the local church or the large scale of the international platforms, there are Christian leaders who by their theological convictions and or by their behaviour show themselves to have seriously maligned the faith, if not abandoning it completely. My first introduction to this horrible phenomenon was with a great evangelical preacher named Roy Clements. After speaking on platforms all over the world, Roy left his wife and children to enter into a relationship with another man that he had been cultivating in secret for some time. Some of you might have heard of the world-renowned Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias, whose own family and ministry organisation now confirm led a double life of serious sexual immorality and misconduct. Perhaps you've heard of the English church leader Jonathan Fletcher, who had a similar track record. Perhaps you're familiar with Joshua Harris and the, the big swathe of American ex-evangelicals who have supposedly deconstructed the faith. But it's not just Christian leaders, and it's not always people who are relationally distant. Some of us will have known or have been close with someone who we thought were committed followers of Jesus, only to have them prove by their abusiveness or their infidelities, or their immoralities, or their heresies, that Jesus was never truly number one in their lives. The damage can be horrific. We're usually shocked at apostasy. That is the, the following Jesus, but then turning away. We're usually shocked at apostasy, and it's almost always the case that we discover the person who has abandoned the truth has spent some time in the lead-up living a double life. The account of King Saul's rejection paints a picture of what having a compromised faith looks like. The kind of faith that leads to spiritual and moral failure and whose end point can easily be apostasy, walking away from Jesus. 
Thankfully, it also provides the preventative solution to apostasy. And that's something that those who are in Christ and therefore assured of their salvation will desperately want to learn and hear and understand. For we know it could easily be the case that God's word to you and me right here, right now, might just be the means by which he's chosen to uphold his promise to keep us in the righteous path. So I hope we tremble before his word as we look at it now together. With his now well-established kingship, Saul is given the command to act as God's agent of righteous judgment. Verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I, uh, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king. He's king now, according to God. King over his people Israel. So listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. So it's like, how more Lord message can you get, right? Listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. Now, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, we know from chapter 12 that both Israel and her king, despite all their sins will yet be prosperous and secure if they obey the word of the Lord. And though the word of the Lord here is profoundly confronting, it is also profoundly unambiguous. Completely wipe off the Amalekites from the pages of history. Initially, Saul appears to have every intention of carrying out the Lord's instruction. He sets up the attack in verses 4 and 5, and then in verse 6, he even warns the Kenites to get out of there lest they get caught up in the slaughter. But of course, it's when push comes to shove, as is so often the case, that things start to come undone. Verse 8, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword, but Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now in chapter 13, Saul had shown a tendency to think that his way is better than God's way, for which he was told that he'd lose his kingship. Perhaps if he begged for mercy, God may have reversed the decision, who knows? But now there could definitely be no hope. This is a flagrant disobedience of the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, a common feature, a common feature of sinful rebellion is that we justify it by claiming that God himself approves. That's right, I'll say it again. One of the ways people can justify sinfulness is, would you believe, by claiming that God approves of it. What I'm doing, thinking and feeling just seems so right. I don't see how God could possibly be opposed to it. Despite the apparent meaning of his word, God must surely approve. Sometimes to aid in self-justification, we show the world that we're actually very proud of what we're doing. 
in a few verses, we'll see that Saul has set up a monument in his own honor. But of course, God will not be mocked. So we now see what happens as Saul, in his disobedience, goes head to head with the clear and powerful word of the Lord. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Because, of course, one is the same as to do the other. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone down to Gilgal, which happens to be the place he was made king, but also where he made an unauthorised sacrifice. Put simply, Saul has disobeyed the clear word of the Lord, and he's now justifying himself by saying, actually, what I've done is very right and very good. And that gets confirmed for us in what I can't help but see as a kind of funny, albeit sad and depressing incident. Picture this, people. Dad gets home at the end of the day and he opens the door and his little child says, hey, Daddy, look at the picture that I drew. Daddy knows all is well. But if Dad gets home at the end of the day and opens the door and the little child says, Hey, Daddy, I did not smash a window in my bedroom with a rock that was grey. Oh, no, I did not. Hi, Dad. Then Daddy knows that there's something wrong. Now, with that little image in your head, look what happens in verse 13. When Samuel reached Saul, he said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. It's delightfully tragic, isn't it? And then the sad yet rather hilarious exchange continues. Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? We read this in staff meeting earlier this week and Gav said we should do it as a kid spot where there's little sheep and goats and they're making noise and you can't hear the words, you know, they keep making noise. And then of course, the digging begins. As Saul sinks deeper into his desperate attempt at self-deception, Saul answers, the soldiers. (laughs) Point, the soldiers bought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. (laughs) The woman you put here with me. Of course, Samuel knows exactly what's going on and he's not going to put up with such childish stupidity. Verse 16, enough, Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Now, if you remember all the way back to the boy Samuel in the early chapters uh, with, with the priest Eli, if God tells Samuel something at night and then he's going to reveal it, you should be kind of worried, right? So Saul's apparent and possible eagerness could be seen as further proof of his self-deceptive justifying. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Supposed to eradicate the evil, not do it yourself. And it's here 
that we see now with absolute certainty, we hopefully suspected it, but now with absolute certainty, that Saul has indeed gone the high-handed route of seeking to justify his sinfulness through the claim that God totally approves of what he has done. Despite the, Lord, the word of the Lord clearly showing him up, Saul can't help but to now go for a barefaced denial. Verse 20, but I did obey the Lord, said Saul. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal, where incidentally Saul had also gone. Hence, we get to the crux of the means by which Saul has sought self-justification. His twisting of the word of God has been done in such a way as to make it seem quite respectable. God does indeed, at many places, command sacrifice. As a matter of fact, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, we're told in Scripture. But if you've read through chapter 13, you'll know that it was the sacrifice of a burnt offering in a way that contravenes the word of God that meant Saul would lose the kingship. He knows this is dodgy. So the only person he seems to be fooling really is himself. So Samuel sets things straight in what really is the key teaching from this chapter. Verse 22, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like a sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now notice that Samuel assumes that the right question to ask for the faithful is what does God delight in? Pleasing the Lord is the thing that the faithful man slash woman is driven by. And the Lord delights in obedience. Far more even then the important matter of sacrifice. We are right to see the great similarity between Samuel's words here and Jesus' words much later against the, the, the Pharisees, where he says in Luke 11, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. It's really easy to appear as if you live in a way that's pleasing to God whilst you've actually got no interest in obeying God. It's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to live in a way that shows we're pleasing God when in reality we have absolutely no interest in obeying him. It's possible you can even do that in a way that you're fooling yourself as you do it. And that's where the road to apostasy begins. Saul's arrogant, self-justified rebellion looks no different into the, in the end to divination and idolatry. Things that might look outwardly spiritual but are in fact detestable to the Lord. It's the good old story of religion 
used to cover up sin. And of course, the problem with ongoing covered up sin is that frankly, it'll take you to hell and it will destroy your life on the way. And so I am forced really to ask, is anyone here leading a double life at the moment? Maybe you're a totally different person when you're with your non-Christian friends or family or colleagues. Excessive drinking, swearing, gossiping, sexual immorality. Maybe there's a long-term festering bitterness and competitiveness between you and somebody else. I mean, they really did do something wrong to you, so you kid yourself that you're completely justified in, in detesting them and being happy when things go bad for them. Maybe it's in marriage, you sort of present as quite the happy, well-to-do couple, but you've not been close with each other for months, maybe years, and you've done nothing about it. I don't know your mind, I don't know your private life any more than you know mine. Apart from spiritual self-deception as a cover-up for sin, the other really big and constant danger that puts us on the road to apostasy is, of course, the failure to fear God more than man. When Samuel finally cuts through Saul's rather pathetic defences and the truth comes out, it's not at all surprising to see that his reputation before others meant more to him, far more to him than delighting God. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Saul, the Lord's anointed, has the same weakness as the Roman governor Pontius Pilate had who ironically gave into the crowd to crucify the Lord's anointed. And at face value, when we see these words, it really does look like a genuine confession and the beginning of repentance. And as all people have a mixture of both good and bad traits, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some level of genuineness in Saul's admission at this point. But sadly... The more prominent side of Saul here is still his people-pleasing side. Samuel sees it and says he won't travel with him. And from verses 26 through to 29, there's that sad interaction where Saul desperately tears at Samuel's robe. And Samuel says, well, this is God tearing the kingdom from you. But the truth of Saul's captivity to people-pleasing is made clear in verse 30 where we read... Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. And so Samuel, perhaps out of a pity or a sense of duty, who knows, we're not told, went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. But you're wondering what kind of worship of the Lord this guy is engaged in now. Now, just before this sad episode gets closed off, we get a quick look at the huge contrast between Saul, whose fear of 
man meant that he wouldn't totally destroy. And Samuel, whose fear of God meant that he most certainly would destroy completely. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord of Gilgal. The NIV has sanitised this somewhat. The ESV translation is, and Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Now, if you can somehow put out of your mind the, the kind of horror, the gory element, the fact that in the coolness of the post-battle calm, the elderly man Samuel is willing to bag out this guy's mum and then hack him to bits, demonstrates a complete, an unwavering, an unhesitant commitment, a love even, of obeying the Lord no matter what. In that moment, somewhat ironically, Samuel so clearly prefigures the great prophet, Jesus, whose uncompromising obedience to the word of God would see him, and he did it with calculation, would see him go all the way to death on a cross so that the sins of Saul and the sins of people like you and like me, who are in many ways bit like Saul, could be pardoned. But unlike the sacrifices Saul made, the one Jesus gave on our behalf was in accordance with God's word, not in defiance of it. Hence, it was thoroughly legitimate and thoroughly effective. Our king acted in complete obedience, such that when he went to war against the enemies that threaten our relationship with God, he absolutely annihilated them, decisively hacking them to pieces and nailing them to the cross. At one level, the big teaching point from this episode is actually from the text itself. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed, better than the fat of rams. Jesus would trust these words of God so much that in his case... He obeyed to the point of sacrifice. The obedience of Jesus is actually one of his most strange and praiseworthy traits. And by way of implication, it's also a key point for us because Jesus' complete obedience made and perfect sacrifice does something, and I choose my words carefully, does something that scares the hell out of me. It means that I no longer have any legitimate reason to hide my secret sins from God or even from other Christians. Saul may have had the kingship to lose and he may have had national popularity to lose, but that's not the case for you and I. In my experience, people who stop being defensive and who do come clean of secret sins with other Christians, which is very scary, but people who do that usually find wonderful acceptance and love and encouragement. To obey, that is to transparently and unashamedly trust God and his word, including his command to admit failure, 
and confess sin to one another is always far better than to keep up the shallow religious show even if you're as good as an, an actor as someone like Ravi Zacharias was. If for no other reason, it could well be the thing that prevents you from walking away from Jesus. It scares the hell out of me, but that's better than going to hell. Now, as a brief but necessary doctrinal aside, how is it that the command to obedience fits in with the doctrine that we can be both saved and sanctified by God's grace alone. Well, that's easy. The very fact that you can obey is only ever always a testament that God has been exceedingly gracious to you. Those who do not have the Spirit cannot please God. It's only those who are in Christ who can enjoy the privilege of rightly responding to God's commands. And more than that, obedience to God happens to result in the most satisfying life, even in the here and now. It doesn't give you your best life now, because ultimately that's not going to be the most satisfying thing, but it will give you the most satisfying life, the kind of life that the Bible describes as one of joy. If you know anything about the rest of the life of Saul, it's kind of a sad Decline. I wouldn't want to live the life that Saul had in front of him. And I certainly wouldn't wish that upon any of you, dear brothers and sisters. If you're worried you're living a double life, if there's something that you sort of know is kind of the opposite to obedience, to transparent obedience to God, scary as it may be, you're far better to confront it now. You're far better to own up to it now. And a little tip, a little helpful implication, is that it helps to choose one big area, just one, and make that the big one. I don't know what it is for you. I uh, have a struggle with X, Y, Z, right? I struggle with gossip. I struggle with pornography. I struggle with my marriage, whatever. I, I don't know what it is, right? But just choose the one area and say, I want this thing to become an area in which instead of hiding, being religious, putting on a show, that I trust myself to God and his word, and I take his word with dreadful seriousness and apply it unashamedly to this. I don't know what that area is, but I'm going to pray that whatever it is for you and for me, that we would heed the word of God that to obey is to better than sacrifice. To transparently rely upon him is better than any religious show that we could ever make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his incredible victory over sin and death and the judgment that we deserve, makes it possible for sinners like us to trust you and obey you fully and without reservation. Father, where there are areas in my life and the areas in our lives uh, that it's just patently obvious that we keep you at arm's length, that we fail to trust you and we fail to obey your word, we pray that in your, the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us, you will give us the great boldness to overcome fear and to confront those things head on for fear of apostasy 
and for love of doing the things that delight you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.